I'm Bryn Griffiths. This is Product Knowledge, the podcast about creating and marketing products that improve people's lives. Joining us from Graphos Product is the President and Principal, Laurie Mandin, and Andrea Schwabi, Director of Media Services. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most important things in launching a product, and that is crossing the chasm. All right, let's get right at it, guys. What is the proverbial chasm? Well, to understand what it is, you first have to understand the curve of customer types when an innovative product comes onto the market. Uh, Back in 1991, a guy named Jeffrey A. Moore published a revolutionary book on the subject. And that's where our episode title comes from. It's called Crossing the Chasm. The book is a little long in the tooth now, but it introduced terms like disruptive innovation and the five types of buyers, which are the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, the late majority, and the laggards. Every marketer and business student knows these terms, but most don't know they came from this book. Hmm. Jeffrey Moore showed them on a curve running from left to right with a large bulge in the middle and different sized gaps between each each type. And those gaps, especially the, the one, the second gap that comes between the early adopters and the early majority, that is the chasm. And, and actually, the big innovation in this thinking was that you have a customer, but sort of different phases of customers. So okay. it was the first time people really had to think about customers in more than just a monolithic, I have a customers. Right. There are different customers at different points of your business. And that's, you know, for a lot of businesses, even now, that's a new idea. How do you pinpoint somebody? Do you know where exactly they are on the, on the scale? Oh, I, could, I can tell you personally, early adopter. I could tell you you are too, and and I'm an early adopter a lot of the time, and very often if I'm doing a business purchase, I'm going to be more in the early majority. And the the difference is, well, we'll start with the innovator. The the innovators, let's say, let's use uh, solar panels as an example. Innovators are the people who would have put solar panels on their houses like 30 years ago, and even if the whole roof just gave them enough power to run a radio on a sunny day, then they still, that would have been good enough for the innovators because they want to be doing something cool and they want to be the first one to do it and they want to be able to tell people they're doing it and learn. Um, so the early adopters are still not quite that early. They're the guys that maybe would have put solar panels on 10 years ago at a huge expense for still not much return. And that's after that we get this really big gap called the chasm and that's between that buyer type and the next type, which is the early majority. The early majority is the ones that'll install solar panels or solar shingles once the cost comes down enough and they're sure it's a reliable solution that's going to give them enough power to run their house and their Tesla and everything else they've got. So what brands need to know, though, is that those early majority buyers don't reference the early adopters. The groups of buyers, those, those customers, are totally discrete. So as an early adopter, uh, I have v- virtually nothing to do with the values, interests, and, and, and uh, use for the product that you know, an early majority person might take. Okay. So I'm, I'm thinking about the product as something completely different. And I know for a fact, I mean, you can read, you can read the book or you can just talk to me and I'll say, I love sort of the dreaminess and the hope of a new product. You know, there's, there's this thing you can do. I remember getting the first Logitech quick cam and actually it was a quick cam. It wasn't even Logitech yet. I don't think. And it was sort of a big golf ball it was black and white. It needed a serial port, another cable, and then power. It was really awkward, difficult to use, but I loved it. And, and everybody now has a webcam. They've got multiple cameras on their phones, but that's me literally 1995. Like that's way, way, way back there. 
I saw something to what this was going to be, and I enjoyed sort of that early experimentation part. And by the time it became common for everyone else, I've already moved on to something else. But that's when the early majority takes over. I, I, I know I don't want to get, take us off topic, but, but I, I fall into both those categories. Is that normal? Like, I, I am an early adopter in so many ways, but I'm also an early majority kind of guy in a lot of ways, too, where sometimes I'll wait. But I tend to be more adventurous, and, I, and I'm and i an adopter first. Is that normal? It is normal, and you know what's going to be, for marketers, the really important part is it's not necessarily that individual's habits in general. It's the habits when it comes to that specific type of product. Okay. Right? Because Andreas might not be an early adopter when it comes to uh, building materials for his house. He may not care too much about that. So if, if you're marketing... There's you know, a variety of building materials yeah. for my house? <laughs> exactly. But if it's electronics products or oh, yeah. things related to, to audio, oh, yeah. then he is. And he falls right into, into that, you know, either innovator or early adopter category. Then we get to the late majority. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, we skipped right over the late majority and the laggards. The late majority, those are the guys that are going to go solar when almost their whole neighborhood is powering their homes and cars with it. Okay. And the laggards... They never will unless there's no other options. So they're the people who still have landlines in their houses today and no internet. And those guys are out there, but you, there's no point marketing anything new to them because they're not going to buy it. So the big chasm is between the early adopters and the early majority then? That's where the big chasm is. And that, and the reason it's so important is in uh, in those early majority people, that's usually 30% of your overall entire market right there. Okay. So making that leap across the chasm is super important. Because you can't take a product to having vast consumer appeal without, at some point, crossing the chasm. And again, that the, the trick here is that you're taking early adopters who have a completely different set of values and interests in your product. And, I mean, ultimately what they kind of do is provide proof of concept. They show that this works. It, you know, they'll, they'll do the nasty beta testing. They're, yeah. they're the thin edge of the wedge. They want to sort of find out, get that bleeding edge experience. And then the chasm is that that gap, because not everybody, no one else is like an early adopter. They have completely different interests in the product, a different way of thinking about it. And so that's the, the, the gap that you have to, to bridge, because ultimately, you've got the early adopters who are just jazzed that the thing even exists. Now you've got to go to really what's ultimately a more pragmatic consumer. Exactly. A much more pragmatic consumer. The um, the early majority consumers are buying something they want to buy from a market leader, and that's a really important thing, that, that a point that the book makes again and again, is that, that these people are the pragmatists. These people who are the early majority, um, they're early, but they're not, they, they want to make sure they're buying a proven product from a market leader. So brands need to know when you're introducing a product that the only way that you can effectively move into that, that bigger 30% is by proving yourself in a smaller niche market and doing a really good job of selling and servicing and, and becoming that market leader so that those pragmatic customers are going to actually buy it. Should I be seeking therapy if I'm between these two? Or is that pretty normal for some people? Is it? I guess it all depends on where your major interest lies, right? Yeah. Well, as a radio guy, you need therapy anyway. So <laughs> not necessarily for that reason. Very, very true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, for example, uh, some people are really interested in cars. Sure. I, I drive a car. <laughs> but, that says it all right there. Yeah, but you know, the color, the features, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that it had Bluetooth and I use it all the time, but all these sort of more advanced features and traction control and whatever and lane control, I just, I'm driving, I've got somewhere to go. I'm not that interested. But 
if you're going to talk microphones or you're going to talk a headphone distribution amp or some other gear, <laughs> I am all in. I'm all nerdy. And, and I mean, I will try the, the only place I'm not a super early adopter is with software because it's just too dangerous. Yeah. But, you know, th if you think about your own interests, some people are really early adopters in, in terms of even just cuisine, you know, just food trends and things like that. Like everyone's sort of got their thing. And I think everybody has sort of early adopter and, uh, you know, they're, they're part of all these different phases. I think as much as anything, they've just got to find those products that are the things they get super excited about. So I have to ask, there's got to be a danger in here for, you know, for uh, somebody launching a product, especially with guys like me where I, I don't know exactly where I stand. I'm about as much on the fence. I'm afraid to jump over the chasm and other times I'm, I'm obviously clearly over it. There, there's a big danger because people, the, the, the marketers have to take a risk. They have to, first of all, risk all their investment in creating this product and, and betting that it's the right product at the right time. And then they've got it to go in and develop and produce it and build relationships to be able to sell it and then still have the people to, to stand behind it to create those early wins. And while they're doing that, be planning on their next, the, the next attack, the next market that they're going to be moving into being using the momentum from that early success, swinging into into the second market and, and the other adjacent markets from there. Yeah, I so, mean, oh, go ahead. So how do you mitigate that? Because obviously, I mean, that's I guess that's really the that's really where the puzzle lies, is it not? For anybody trying to market a product. Yeah, well, analyzing the the available markets and and developing what we call a market segmentation strategy. That's one of the elements we cover in our innovative product go to market roadmap. And we spend a lot of time with our clients looking at, okay, who are the different markets, these different niche markets that, that we can target, which ones are the easiest ones to access, the ones where we can get the early success and are the right size. Because bigger isn't always better. If, if you go after a niche market that's too big and too vast and too widespread and too logistically difficult to reach, then you may not succeed in that market and create that early win that you really need to become a market leader in at least one sector, one, one niche, so that you can leverage that to get into the others. But that's where, you know, that's your beachhead to, to use the Yeah, yeah. And for, for a lot of businesses, that's really uncomfortable because you have to be so focused. Uh, and being focused requires discipline because you can't stray off the path. And, and that's often one of the biggest challenges for, for sort of establishing that beachhead is just staying on track. Before we move on, and I'm, I'm using myself as, a, as kind of a guinea pig here, the, the chasm can be big for me. It's either I don't want to spend that kind of money on that product. And, and, and the other uh, one for me is uh, I also believe that you get what you pay for. So for me, it's quality. And so I guess I'm jumping back and forth over the chasm frequently I must be a marketer's nightmare. It uh, that depends on how or well a marketer. It depends on how well a marketer decides which of, of of these markets you are for the product. Okay, right? Because if you're if if you're not feeling the love immediately, and you uh, and you need to do more research, you need to see success in others using the product. Yeah. Then you aren't an early adopter anymore. You're the early adopters are the ones that are willing to take the risk just for uh, just to be able to show they've got the product. When the iPhone came out, I've always got to have an a Apple example in here. When the iPhone came out, it was the early adopters who waited in line overnight and, and you know, they were the ones that showed off their phones because they managed to get one to everyone. And eventually the product moved from that prestige item, you know, the, if you saw one, it was like, that guy's got an iPhone, to, you know, they're everywhere. Now, 
every third grader has one and, and his grandma has one too, which, you know, for Apple, crossing that chasm was a, a totally different thing, though, yeah. than it is for, for a small business starting up with one product that's launching it where they're risking everything on being able to to cross that chasm. But not not every product brand has the power of a Steve Jobs. We We bring up Apple all the time here, and for good reason. They're there, but... That's obviously where taking the product to a beachhead comes in. Do, who wants? How do we want to attack this one? Well, I mean, okay, let's break it down into the, the sort of four main components of this. Okay. So you've, if you're going to establish a beachhead, first you have to target the point of attack. Then you assemble your invasion force. Then you, you sort of define the battle. You set up how you're going to you know, do your attack. And then you launch. And so this is actually very much the same process. So we're going to sort of go with a D-Day theme a little bit. Sure, okay. Um, and, and I mean, I, I mean I'll mean, i let Laurie start. I mean, target the point of attack. That's, that's our focus point. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey Moore's book uses the analogy of a D-Day invasion with the beachhead at Normandy, because that's a really good example, you know, with the English Channel being even a, a, a reference point for the chasm. And the Allies didn't have the power to jump the English Channel and reclaim all of occupied Europe in one go. So the idea is you need to focus your resources on a niche you know can be taken and you get established there and you move into into first onto that beachhead and from there into those adjacent markets that you plan you're going to you're going to be moving into next and as with the D-Day invasion it's it's not always entirely as planned and you do some improvising and there's some surprises along the way but by having that strategy right from the start at least you know you've got a hope of taking over this large area you don't just you know throw everybody in scattered all over the place and um, and that's a mistake that, that brands make all the time is, you know, getting the product out there and just thinking, okay, we're going straight into sales mode. We're going to sell this thing hard all over the place. And, you know, if they do have huge successes and, you know, by getting lucky, they often aren't able to provide the support their customers need. And it creates another big risk for them. I saw the movie Patton recently. And, and I guess since we're continuing along on that, that theme, and he said that no good battle wasn't planned well in advance. He said, you have to know where you're going to go and you have to know what you're going to do. Cause if you kind of, if you kind of half go into it, it's, it's costly. And, uh, and when you handed this, uh, this book off to me, uh, the, the Moore book, and I started reading it, it's, that's the one area that I was most fascinated by because the analogy he used there with the, the Normandy uh, invasion, it summed it up perfectly. It made perfect sense. Everything that he talked about made perfect sense, and it made it crystal clear for me. And it takes it into a physical, real battleground, yes. right? Because the way that the, the marketing and product launches happen, you know, it, it's real and tangible, but it, it's, not, it's not so visible as far as, you know, the, the actual results happen more slowly and off camera a lot of the time. But, uh, you know, it's only it ends up being the, the bottom line impacts that you see and, and the what the heck happened there. So with an example like that, it gives us something real that we can anchor anchor onto. Well, and even, you know, as we go into the second thing, which is assemble an invasion force, this to me is, this is one of the most terrifying parts of product development because especially in software and technology, there's a concept called MVP, which is minimum viable product. And so many companies are interested in a minimum viable product. We've got to get this out there and it's just going to be sort of the base acceptable version. It's the least people will accept for a dollar. But, you know, we need to get to market and start generating revenue. The problem is your hardware probably isn't exactly where it needs to be. The whole concept needs to be developed. You've got to think about, you know, customer support, service, you know, manufacturing, packaging, 
everything absolutely needs to be considered ahead of time because literally your packaging is part of your invasion force. When you see Apple stuff on the wall, it's a wall of beautiful. And oh, that's, yeah. that's planned. I mean, that's part of their invasion. There is that source of just overwhelming you with, wow, look at all that. And that all comes into it. And, and so, you know, whether your systems require software, you need hardware integration, software integration, installation, training, support, debugging, like the whole thing, your standards, procedures, policies even, you know, what you call things um, is, is really important. I mean, are they clients? Are they customers? Are they guests? You know, at a hotel, it's a guest. Somewhere else, it's something else. But they're all customers. We just have different names and categories for them. So the, the assembly of the invasion force is really super critical. I mean, that's getting your two million guys ready to go to the beach and making sure everybody, ha you know, everything is in place the way it needs to be. And, and that's, that requires a fair bit of vision. And this is a massive planning stage. Because if you blow a section in here, it's going it's yeah. to trickle down. What you said about the whole product is so important. That's that's a really central theme to, to this book as well. The crossing the, the chasm theme is is that the theory is that you need to go in with a whole product that the consumers are going to feel as whole and not feel, especially when you're getting to the pragmatists. They don't want to buy something that that's half there, and they they don't want to be lacking on support. There can't be anything missing when you're moving into that market. And I'm a big fan, especially with software projects, of, of developing that minimum viable product because getting distracted by bloat, I've seen that fail enough times that I know that's a, a bigger road to failure when it comes to software products. But when it's a consumer product, when it's a physical product, having something that's entire, and even with software products to, to the extent that it has to function and achieve its purpose on its own, even if you have strategic partnerships with other tools that are going to integrate with it, it has to work very well out of the box in order to, to, to get those pragmatists to buy it, to be satisfied, to, to give it good ratings and to recommend it so that it's going to grow. Um, if, you're, if you're launching a product and, it's, and, and you need to buy accessories or parts to make it something that's going you know, down the road in order to make it effective enough and successful enough, then you're creating some weaknesses that, uh, that'll end up taking you down. Well, and it's interesting too, because right now we have two major phone manufacturers who have made some decisions about what, can, what constitutes a complete product. So both the iPhone and the Galaxy S10 don't have a headphone jack or buttons. Yeah. So it's a completely different world now. Like they've basically said, this is not part of a complete product anymore. And for someone like me who relies on audio and I want that analog connection, to me, that is a incomplete project product and I'm not touching it. You know, what's interesting. This past February was about as cold as it ever gets here in Western Canada. And so I had a lot of time to read and I, I was watching on YouTube and it was Steve Jobs and he was talking about the transition from the old Apple to their new Apple. And it was, we, uh, we you know, we used to just put a product out and people would go buy it. That was what we hoped. Then we came to the realization that we had to uh, that we had to listen to what the customer wanted, and then build it to the customer. Other and they saw their sales zoom from that point. And what they did, it seems to me, they basically, I think what they did was they shortened the chasm a little bit, and it made it easier for people to buy. You know, all of a sudden now now the one thing that I've always hated is having somebody push forward a product, and I'm thinking I don't know if I want that. But clearly, they've made all the changes that they wanted because they realized that that's probably going to be the best way to attack this from a marketing standpoint. Am I wrong on that? 
it takes a, a certain amount of authority in the market to be able to sure. make those changes because Apple was the first, you know, to, to take off the USB from its computers. Before that, the CD-ROM drive. They're constantly removing things from the products. And it takes it takes a giant to be able to do those kinds of things because if it's some small, if it's a smaller company, now you're shipping an incomplete product and the customer base is not going to accept that. So it, I'm kind of grateful sometimes, even though I resent having to buy all the adapters every time <laughs> Apple comes out with a new device. Yeah. But, but someone's got to do it. And, uh, but it's good that you mentioned that because that is not usually the place of, of an innovative new product that's coming in out of nowhere. Right. And, and there, you know, there's, there's, that just increases risk if you're making your product incomplete. So unfortunately, I would say, no, you should have whatever those, those connectors are that your users are going to be looking for. And if there's something that you think is better, make room for it. But, but don't be the one that's eliminating the, that connectivity when you're, when you're coming into a market that you're not in yet. There's also the fear of a competitor, let's say, uh, beating you to a large-scale adoption. Is that true? Is that right? That's true. And that's one of the biggest fears. Anybody listening here who's developing a product you're terrified that someone's going to steal your idea and they're going to beat you to market. So you're, you got your NDAs and everything you're doing is hush hush and, and, and thinking about how you can move as fast as you can. And you're going to avoid going into those niche markets and you want, because you're going to want to target everyone. Brand owners worry about competitors seeing their idea and knocking it off. So they want to hit the whole market at once. And that is one of the biggest mistakes you can make because what competitors are going to see is those gaps. They're going to see what you're doing wrong and that's, that is the big opportunity for them. That's what's going to make them jump in and decide to crush you. Um, so if your product, but if your product is complete, your service is phenomenal. And even in a small niche, when you're just starting out in a niche, the competitors aren't going to try and beat you because your momentum is going to be too hard to beat and you've addressed the problem too well. But if you decide you're going to blanket and, and hit everybody, competitors will realize these guys are lacking in service. That's an opportunity for us. We've just got to go in and do a copy of their product, but with great service, and we're going to own this market. That, you know, by seeing that as the biggest potential mistake and, and turning that on its head, that's one of the areas. Um, that's not something that's in the book, but to me, from what I've seen and the way that I've seen companies fail, it's very often by just having that mentality that if we don't go in hard, give it all we've got and try and hit everything at once, then we're just going to get copied. And their demise is not usually because they got copied. It's usually because they ran out of steam from not being focused enough. Like even even when we're talking about competition, we can move to the third section, which is really defining the battle. Yeah, and and uh, I'll use a Pacific theater <laughs> example, which is Genda. So more, uh, oh, what was his name now? It starts with an M, but his last name was Genda, and he was sort of tasked with really planning Pearl Harbor, and he was famous for just thinking of everything, like the seagulls are migrating that day. So the planes need to sort of go a little further. Like everything was thought of. And that's really what defining the battle is all about is, I mean, it's like the political game. You know, if you say politician X is, you know, that person is against whatever I like, then you're defining them. And ultimately what you're trying to do in defining the battle is define how everyone has to fight the battle, not just you, but everybody, including your competition, because it's a challenge to them. We, and this is our radio station analogy, when we launched our radio station here in early 2000s, every competitor in the market said we weren't going to last more than six months. But our thought was, okay, this is our major competition. What are they doing? And then we did exactly everything they didn't do. Right. And station's still on the air. 17 years, a couple of weeks ago, by basically recognizing that they have some flaws, 
They have some weaknesses, and we those are our strengths. So we built to that, and the audience just came to us. And I, I'm guessing in some ways that's what we've been talking a little bit about here. That's what we're talking about. One of the things that we're talking about trying to do, because if you have an innovative product, then you've probably already looked around and, and seen that that hole in the market, the gap that you can fill. But don't create a, your own gaps and just kind of flag an opportunity right. and show that you're screwing it up by not addressing all the points, not having that complete product and not giving it the full support and, and focus that you need. Don't get distracted by all of the, all the shiny stuff out there and lose track of your, your plan of that strategy that you have. If you shake keys, do both of you pay attention to key shaking? Are you both, uh, if you see a shiny object, are you shiny object guys or no? Like if you see something. Uh, are you easily distracted? That's basically what I'm trying to ask you. Yes and no. Depend, <laughs> depends on what we're talking yeah. about. I think Andreas and I are similar then, and both of us like to get our heads right into something, and, okay. and then we can be really hard to distract. Yeah. When it comes to that type of thing, I think yeah, exactly. that, I think that's yeah. a bigger problem sometimes is is that if my if my brain is in a certain space and somebody needs to talk to me that I don't want to extract from it because I know it took me a while to get that that mental momentum. Yeah. Well, and you you get so deep into something that you're you're then just playing with ideas. It just it's really fun, but it's it's a little bit nerdy and a little too focused sometimes. It I oh, mean yeah. it, it's not always the best thing to be too focused because you need to be aware of what else is going on around yeah. you. Well, I got to say when it comes to to product development, the shiny stuff is, it's not just, you know, you're more easily distracted than usual. If you're focused on a product and all you're looking for is, you know, is this thing going to succeed and what else is out there? What are we missing? Then you start to see anything that's not part of your product that could be as a potential feature that you're missing, a, a feature opportunity. So that shiny stuff is it be, is suddenly everywhere. And, you know, it keep, that keeps entrepreneurs awake at night worrying that there's somebody else is going to come out with this killer feature that's going to make all their hard work for nothing. Yeah. And I mean, so much of this too is based on how companies communicate, you know, what they say about their products. Sure. And that's a huge part of, of, of sort of launching the invasion kind of thing, because as you, as you're defining the battle, you need to have your elevator pitch and all those ideas. I mean, you and I both worked at the Oilers. It was the organization. Everyone called it the organization. We never called it the team. It was just the organization. You went to the rink. We had ways of talking about everything, which were cultural but they spilled over into absolutely everything we did and everyone was empowered. And so it just always seemed like, even though you had 20 different departments, it always sounded the same. So it seems like one organization and there's that word. And everybody needs to do that. Every company needs to have a really clear grasp, not just on what they sell and what they do, but how they talk about it. Well, people bought into the brand, right? Yeah. The organization. Yeah. Before we go on to this, one other thing, I talk about uh, how I'm back and forth over the chasm. I rely heavily also on people. If I'm on the safe side before I make the big jump, I heavily rely on the people on the other side to say, come on over. Like To me, I'm going now more to consumer reviews than I've ever done before. Is that normal? That's something that didn't exist in 1991 when this book was written. Yeah. And Andreas and I were talking about the Better Business Bureau and these other mechanisms that existed mm -hmm. you know, prior to that. But that is a really important part of, of getting that momentum is – that if you're on Amazon and you have two stars for your average review, then you're doomed. You are not going to be able to, to cross the chasm because these people who don't know enough about your innovative new product are all looking at it and assuming it's terrible and moving on. So that's absolutely hugely important. And that's part of the, part of the reason why that, that support for the customers for creating a seamless whole product and a great experience. And uh, people can go and, and listen to the podcast that we 
did on well, whatever it was. What, what do we call it? <laughs> wait, 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 <laughs> our past ones. Uh, yeah, our obsession. The, 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 our past episode on obsession branding. Oh, that's right. In order to you know to understand more about how that whole product experience works and and how all of the things that you do tie together to create those perfect experiences for for customers. We only have one section left to talk about. So we've talked about targeting the point of attack, which is, you know, your specific niche, uh, assembling the invasion force, which is the whole product idea, and then defining the battle, which is your communications, validity of the product claims and all that stuff. And now we're into the launching invasion. And really, ultimately, that's just primarily distribution and pricing. Like you're in the market. Go. I, I got to think that if you're not priced right, you're never going to make it. Right. You've, the price has got to be reasonable well, for somebody a, to make that jump. That's a big part of validation. Okay. Because I, I, I wrote a blog post, and one of, the, one of the things I talk about was how during the 2006 playoff run at the Oilers, you have all these vendors who, you know, as we go deeper in the playoffs, they want to pitch products to sell during the playoffs. Sure. And some guy came, and he had spray-painted blue hats and just tapped, you know, stuck with glue, uh, just paper-printed logos on the top, and he wanted to sell them for 25 bucks. And we had them in the store for 20 and they didn't smell like paint and weren't, wouldn't run off you, all over you if you sweat a bit. He didn't do any product validation work at all. And that was the failure in defining the battle. He had already lost because he didn't know what the rules of conf, you know, the conflict were. He was, he was already overpriced with a, a, an inferior product. So when we talk about the distribution and pricing, that, you know, that val, product validation, the price validation, and where you can sell it. Like some places just are not interested in certain types of products. It's harder to sell a kayak in Edmonton than it is in Vancouver. And, Imagine and, that. And our buyer <laughs> these buyer types come into play there too because the innovators are willing to pay usually less than the early adopters because they're expecting a less than perfect product. So they, they may want an, an, uh, a special deal for buying something that's in beta stage if it's a software application or something that, you know, that's untested. And then the early adopters may pay more than the early majority because they know they're, they're going to pay a premium to be the first ones to have this new thing in their hands. Then when you move into early majority, um, as, as hopefully your, your costs of producing the product are going to go down because the early majority is going to want to have more value pricing. They're looking at their business case for, for whatever they're buying or, or the, the usage case and deciding if it's worth it for what they're buying more than those early adopters are going to. The early adopters might buy something and when the next big thing comes out, they're going to throw it away anyway. So they don't sure. care so much. And by the time you get into the late majority, that's when people really expect value pricing. They expect it to be uh, competitively priced because there are other competitors. They're still willing to pay a premium a bit to buy from that market leader, um, just as the early majority are. But so th the pricing models, the the acceptable pricing level changes throughout as you work through through those different cycles. And and there's also like think of your sales force as part of the invasion force because those guys are the field commanders who, when they meet resistance, oh, I don't like this product for that. If they're quick on their feet, they can create another case. And if you have good communication channels, they'll communicate that back to marketing, and then you can actually build that into future development of the product and marketing. Um, so that feedback loop, again, everything that's set up in defining the battle, it always comes back to the next stage. Everyone, every stage is connected to the next, even though the customers for those segments may not be. And then we have a launch to worry about. How tough is that? You hope you've done all your homework. Yeah, and and you know, it's the launch happens once in a really big way usually, but it's it's kind of ongoing. As you're crossing over and, and, and expanding into these different markets, you're sort of relaunching for for each of these niche markets that you're heading into. If you're doing it right, 
and you're taking one niche at a time and, and then leveraging that one to get into the next one, it's sort of launch after launch. And those those transitions sometimes create an opportunity to do make things like price adjustments, to add features, to improve the product, to you know change up your support. Uh, the the smart companies are always looking at at that as, as as being very dynamic and and not just looking at where to go next, but what needs to be done in order to do even better as you're entering the next the next phase. Can you think of anything that you bought and you, that you jumped at because you thought this is going to be the hot thing and yet it never turned out? As we were talking, I was trying to think of something, and, and you know, I, I went through an, a number of. I, I've bought some products that were kind of junky, and I didn't do enough research into, you know, into finding out why maybe their price is so low. And those are kind of the bigger mistakes <laughs> yeah. when, it's, when it's something a, a technology product that I'm buying that that I really want, and I, you know, and, and I'm going to wait in line for or go out of my way to get. Then usually I've done enough research that you know I'm usually more surprised at all the cool things it can do as opposed to um, the, yeah. how much yeah. it, it can't do that I was hoping it would. Okay, so jumping and crossing the chasm has been the topic today. Have we missed out any, on anything? Well, I think just to double back and, and, and remind the listeners that, you know, it, it's so important that, that they, if they want to, to cross the chasm, first of all, they need to know it's there and to understand why it's there, to understand there, there are differences between the psychologies of the people who are going to grab the product right away as quickly as they can and the ones that are waiting, understand why those customers are waiting and and satisfy through that that strategy, through having... That, that market segmentation strategy completed. That's a really important thing. And whether you hire a marketing agency like Graphos product to do it for you, or you do it yourself by reading a lot of books and, and using your gut, um, it, it's a very important thing. And, and you know, just having listened to this, I think most, most of the people who are, who are tuning in are, are going to go away with at least some better knowledge of, of what they need to know next and, and what mistakes they shouldn't make, I'm hoping. Yeah, I mean... The, the thing about the chasm is, is really understanding that you may have one market, but you don't have one customer. You have different customers and the life of your product has, is attractive to different people at different times and knowing when those are, I mean, and, and again, those early adopters have all the enthusiasm and energy and they help you really develop and refine your product. But getting it into the hands of most people is, is the real trick. And that's where you really have to plan Take the lessons you've learned from the early adopters and then push them forward. Yeah. There's so many things in, in this book, you know, I mentioned before, it's from 1991 and I'd never read it before, even being a marketer. And some of the, the big surprises to me were the terms that were in this book that the, today's marketers, the inbound marketers think that were, were invented just for them, like buyer personas. Th- this book is, when we're talking about the market segmentation there's a lot of discussion as well about the different buyer types and, and, and so much as, as being buyer personas. That's always been really important. And it, it's easier to target those and, and your inbound marketing tools can actually create lists and segment lists by those persona types. So we have all these really great tools that we can use now to, to help us in marketing to, to not just know who these, these groups are, but to target them really effectively. Um, so... That's been really cool for me to to kind of go back at this 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 old book from the '90s, the early very early '90s, and to see that there's you know all this cool stuff came from back then. Um, you know, I've been t- talking about early adopters and innovators and early majority to my clients for many years now, but uh, I don't think I was even aware that that this book defined all those things. Hey, that's it for this episode of Product Knowledge. Graphos, you can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Graphos Canada. 
You can also visit our blog at blog.graphos.ca. We'd love to hear from you, too. Subscribe, like, or leave a review to the podcast or share it with a friend or colleague. Just drop us a line at productknowledge at graphos.ca. Product Knowledge is the podcast about creating and marketing products that improve people's lives. Thanks for listening. I'm Bryn Griffiths.